He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Well, now that I'm back more permanently uh, with you, I'd like to begin a series um, of sermons and looking at this last section of Christ's ministry, which really begins in this passage. And the series will really look at Christ's path to the cross. And I would like to walk with Christ from this point uh, to the cross as the four Gospels lead us in that. And John's Gospel says, when he closes his Gospel, he tells us why he even wrote it in the first place. And he tells us that he wrote these things and the signs that we might believe and that believing in his name that we would have life. That's what John's Gospel is for. When we read it spiritually, dependent upon the Lord, with our souls open and engaging with God as we read it, as we behold Christ in that gospel, it is to at least give birth to faith if we don't have it. But even if we have saving faith, it is meant to strengthen that faith. Each time we engage with Christ and we read the Bible and hear the Bible preached as a means of grace, it is to do something to us. None of us are passive when we read the Bible. None of us are passive when we preach the word of God or hear it preached, it's always doing something. If we are prepared and longing for the Lord to speak to us, the word of God is a dynamic power that will build and grow our faith and stretch our souls and fill our souls with things that our souls don't have. We are to feed upon this. But even if it's not doing that, it will harden. There is no such thing as a passive listening to the word of God. God wouldn't allow that to happen. It's always doing one of these two things. It's growing, expanding, and softening, and giving life and muscle to our spiritual hearts, or it is bashing upon the heart of stone and making it even harder. And that's why it's always a solemn thing for us to worship God at all. It always does one of these two things. And I want us to walk with Christ because I want to grow. I want to know Christ more than I do. I can't stay still in my life. I'm either going forwards or backwards. And I want to go near Christ. We saw two weeks ago that the, the job of the ministry of the church is to preach Christ 
and him crucified. That's what Paul said when we looked at that. And there's no better way than to go near Jesus Christ than to go to these four Gospels and walk with him. And we'll learn what he said and what he did. And as the shadow of the cross begins to loom more large upon him, we'll see the Son of God. I could go to Paul's letters and explain the doctrines of Christ to you, and at some point in the future we will do that, but there's no better way to know Christ than to just go in and stand beside him and to go with him and to watch him and every word he says and everything he does as he deals with this impending sacrifice that is going to be put upon him. That's why I want to do that. Because I want us to grow. And we're told here in verse 21 that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. That's a key to this gospel. The same thing is in Luke. Luke puts it slightly differently. But after this event and after the transfiguration, when Jesus knew that he would be received up, he set his face to Jerusalem. And I want to say that at the very beginning. That's who we're following as we go through this series. We're not following the disciples. We're going to see that at this point in his ministry, the disciples become of little help to them. The support that they gave him in the first two years of the ministry, when they believed what he said and all of these things, when they, they received fresh from him with acceptance and without resistance what he said, even for Christ as a man, that was a comfort to him, the comfort of fellowship and companionship that we all need as men and women. But from this point on, they really stopped listening to him. Now we're going to see that Peter says something here that is remarkable, and that definitely would give Christ a kind of encouragement, but he's about to go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and when he goes up there to pray, they all fall asleep. And from that point on, they're arguing about who would be the greatest. They're wanting positions of thrones next to him, in an earthly kingdom that he will set up in Jerusalem, and they're not seeing at all what has been deposited in his heart since he was a child. Since at his very circumcision, when he was brought to the temple and Simeon saw the child, and he turned to me and said, this child will be the cause of much falling in Israel, and a sword will pierce your soul. Me. Jesus' life has that piercing in it. He's a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. And Jesus is aware from a young age that this is what his mission is. So friends, as we walk with him, he's not a teacher, he's not an encourager, he is not someone who helps us figure out how we are to deal with these other disciples. It's, he's not giving us a master class of friendship or anything like that. What's happening to Christ here is that at this point in his ministry, he is going to be shown what he must suffer for the sins of his people. Now, he hadn't seen that before. He knew about it. He read about it in Scripture. He believed it. He knew the self-identity of himself, even at 12 years old, when he said to his parents, I must be about my father's business. His father's business was this. He knew it at 12. But at this point in his ministry, something changes. From that time, he began to show his disciples he must go. Not that he wants to go, not that it would be a good idea to go, but he must 
go. This is who he is. It's been appointed by God, and he must suffer many things. And Peter, James, and John can't help him with this. Peter, James, and John can't support him in this. This is between him and God. This is between him and all of the train of sinners that are connected and linked to him in single file behind him. Millions of souls who are born in sin, who live in sin, and who die in sin. And all of the payment he must make for them, and out of his love for them, he begins to see that way. And it's between him and his father. And Luke tells us, he sets his face to Jerusalem. Now when he sets his face to Jerusalem, there's a way in which, and we must be careful, but there's a way in which he, everything else he sees is secondary to that. He loves the disciples. He ministers to them. He heals the sick. He saves souls. But he is focused on Jerusalem. He is focused on the scribes and the Pharisees and their rejection. And he must go. And we can see this beginning to happen in his ministry at this time. We see that um, you can split his ministry into three years, really. A year of inauguration, a year of opposite, a year of support, and a year of opposition. The year of inauguration is when he only has three or four disciples. When he called Nathaniel, he called Peter, he called John, and he, he went to the feast in Jerusalem in John 3 and he spoke with Nicodemus. He only had three or four disciples at this point. He hadn't officially called them to the ministry. And he saved the woman of Samaria. He saved the man at the pool of Bethesda. He did all of this by himself. As he was inaugurated, and people began to see that this person had claims that he'd been baptized, and that a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son, a year of inauguration, where people were curious and interested, as you may be, as I may be, times in our life, where we hear the claim of the gospel, and we find it quite interesting, these marvelous claims that are made. Then there's a year of support and popularity, when mostly Galilee just accepts what he's saying, and only the Pharisees have a problem with them. Thousands upon thousands just accept what he's saying. And they see the wonders that he's doing. And they say, could this be the Christ? Surely this is the prophet. They see wonderful things. They have hopes of being liberated from Rome. They have all of these expectations. And Christ is healing the sick as the Messiah would do. Christ is feeding thousands as the Messiah would do. Christ is speaking against the religious rulers as the Messiah would do. And they accept it, and they like it. This is for us. And in John 6, the chapter that we read, they take him by force, it says, and they try to crown him, to make him king. When he feeds the 10,000 at the side of the Sea of Galilee, they say, this is the Christ. And they come to him to officially anoint him, like they did with David, to anoint him as their king. And then will begin the great attack against Rome. And they are dumbfounded and confounded and confused because Christ refuses their approach, refuses their acclamations, refuses their positive words, and he, will, he says, you're only interested because you ate and were filled. And he says the same to us. Maybe Christ has a year of popularity in our culture. There are times when it's popular, where Christ is acceptable, and he gives, he gives money. He gives Mercedes. He gives help. He gives help. He's pro-family. He's, 
He's pro-constitution. He's, he's pro what we like, and we like that we can package Jesus in our life, and he's for us, and he'll never do us harm, and we like it because the wind is blowing in our direction, and he's popular, and we sign up, and we say we are Christians, we love Jesus. But remember who he really is. He stepped back, and he went up on the hill that night, and he hid himself from them. Because there is more to Jesus than the loaves and the fishes and the popularity. And the desire to have a king that helps us. He's not a king who helps. He's a king who sets aside from them. Again, away from the frenzy of popularity. And he isolates himself and sets his face to the cross. Because that's why he came and that's all that matters. He goes into the synagogue and he changes his sermon. It, go, it goes away from blessed are the meat who inherit the earth. He changes his sermon and he makes it direct and vivid and even complicated for them. And he says to the Jews, you must eat flesh and you must drink my blood, which is an abomination to the Jews. To drink blood. Jesus didn't have to say that. He could have said, drink upon my grace. But he says it to them because he has to let them know that what they must follow is not popularity, not goodness, and not his support, not his provision. But they must deal with the flesh and the blood. They must deal with death. They must deal with sin and atonement. They must deal with the curse and the foolishness of the cross, as we saw a few weeks ago. Do we understand that, brothers and sisters? That is the key to our life. All the problems that we have each day. When the door closes and the room is filled with confusion, the only key that ever unlocks that door is Christ crucified. That's what deals with our sin, our confusion, all of the decisions we must make, all of our interactions with each other. It's Christ crucified. He says to us, with power, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we are told that the disciples left. They filed out of the synagogue one by one. They got up from their pews and they said, we don't want this. There's a disappointment. He will not become king. And now he's telling us that he's going to die and we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. They said, this is a hard saying. And we can't listen to this. Can you listen to it, friends? Can I? Are we attracted to listen to that? Because that's the only thing that saves our souls. They go out of the synagogue. And Jesus actually goes to a Gentile region. We read of it in another gospel. He leaves the Jews because the Pharisees and scribes have now officially, as a church, rejected him. So it's like the presbytery meets and officially rejects him as Messiah. Now he's an outcast, he's an outsider, and his life is in danger. And he goes to a Gentile region. Uh, in Syrophoenicia, in the Decapolis, and he actually feeds 4,000 this time. He just repeats the miracle for these outcasts, for the ones who aren't acceptable to the Jews, the half-breeds, the Jews who are half-Gentile. He repeats the miracle, and he shows them his love and grace, and he leaves his witness there. These are his two great miracles, and he leaves his witness there. And what he does is interesting, and this is where we're going to see his message to us this morning. He takes his disciples up to the region, verse 13, of Caesarea Philippi. That's where he takes them. And we have to understand that 
That's a very unusual place for him to take them. He doesn't take them to Jerusalem, where the religious institutions are, and where there can be discussion, theological discussion about himself. He doesn't take them to Capernaum, where he had a big base of support, where Peter's house was, and where Jesus actually lived. He doesn't take them there. He goes through Galilee, miles and miles up, to the very extremities of the land of Israel, to the very border with the Greek Roman world, outside the land of promise and outside the Holy Land, near Mount Hermon on the slopes of Mount Hermon, to Caesarea, Philippi. This place had been a place of idolatry when King Rehoboam had taken the true worship of God and set up a golden calf in the north and in the south, one in Dan and one in Beersheba, at the two edges of the Promised Land. There had been a calf, a golden calf, on this site where people went to worship Jehovah in the form of a golden calf. It was a place of idolatry. Then it became an important place for the Greeks. And the name of the place before it was called this was Paneus, after the Greek god Pan, the god of nature, the god of seeds, and the god of fertility. The Greek god that the Greek philosophers believed gave life to the world and gave fertility to the ground and fertility to man. And he was worshipped as the giver of life. And there was a mountain there that had a cave in it, a large rocky hill that had a cave underneath it, that has a cavern going down uh, lots of feet into the ground where there is a well of water and the Greeks believed that Pan lived in this cave and that the waters were the waters of life and they used to go there and worship at the cave asking for life out of this cave. Then, in Jesus' day, Herod was given this area by Caesar. It was a gift to him when he became king. And he was given this area, and to get himself into the good graces of Caesar, he dedicated the city to Caesar. And he built a temple to Caesar in this place, where you could go in and worship Caesar Augustus. And when Caesar Augustus died, they actually deified him. They said he was God. This is the place you went to worship falsely Jehovah. This is the place you went to worship Pan. This is the place you went to worship Caesar. This is a metropolitan place. Like Washington DC or New York or London or Rome and these cities. This, this is a, a, it's not as big as those places obviously, but the culture is a pluralistic culture where lots of ideas are accepted and people ask questions about who God is and what the world is and what the meaning of life is and there are temples there to discuss these things and to worship these deities. He gave the city to Caesar and Herod, whose name was Philip, named the city in vanity after himself, Caesarea Philippi, and then he gave the other name to Caesar. So this was to link him to Caesar. Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi from Nazareth, who is linked to Jerusalem, takes his disciples far away from Jerusalem. Far away from the scribes, far away from the teachers, far away from the crowds. And he takes them up as far as he can go before he properly steps outside of the land of God. He takes them to the border with the Roman Greek world and all of its ideas. And he isolates them to ask them a question. 
And it's the question he must ask them, and it's the question that he asks us in our life. He, God always asks questions. And we are busy and we go on with things, and he stops us in our tracks and he asks us questions. The disciples have questions. Their question is, Lord, who will be the greatest? Their question is, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Their question is, why do the scribes say Elijah must come before the Messiah? They have lots of questions. But let's see how different Christ is from us and from them. Christ has another question. And you see the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 13. And in verse 15, who do you say that I am? We see an asking, we see an answer, and we see an affirmation in this passage. And we see an asking. Isn't it interesting that and he isolates these disciples from all that they know and from all other opinions? He takes them far away. That's important. We're influenced by other people. We're used to our routine. We're very susceptible to the noise and the, the opinions of all those around us. And we get on with our life. But God must take us aside in silence where he can speak to us, to our souls, to ask the really important questions. There are many opinions in the Gospels about who Jesus is. Many people have many opinions. But Christ can't ask them when they're in the middle of a crowd of 10,000 and everyone is saying, Hail to the King. Jesus does what we don't expect and what we don't naturally do. He forces them aside. They don't know where they're going. He just leads them up there into the silence of that region, away from their religion, away from the Pharisees, away from all of the opinions. And at this point, in this closing year of his ministry, he asks to start asking them very fundamental, important questions. Lest they be lost. He says here that one of them is a devil. He knows. He knows that Peter is proud. He knows that James and John are <coughs> walking positions next to him. He knows that Judas, there's something seriously wrong. And he must stop them and ask them. And in asking them, he's, Jesus knows the answer, obviously. In asking them, he's telling them. God doesn't ask us questions because he doesn't know the answer. He asks us questions so that we will learn from our answer and we might be surprised by our answer. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Is what he asks. Who do people say? They, they gather together to give up an answer together. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but others still say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These are legitimate answers that were being given at the time. Herod um, had got himself into an awful situation uh, regarding John the Baptist. Herod liked John the Baptist and he he used to call him in to listen to him preach. He was very impressed with John the Baptist. But his wife hated John the Baptist. His wife was an affluent, powerful woman. 
and her name was Herodias, and she hated John the Baptist. And the reason she hated John the Baptist was that John the Baptist was called into the palace to perform for them, and Herod's wife, Herodias, had actually been his brother's wife before that, and he simply taken her, and she had come willingly to come and be with him in the place of power. And John the Baptist says to the two of them, this is not right, and it's against the law of God. And she murdered him in her heart. She was fuming with this. She was a powerful, vindictive, serpent-like woman. And she had her daughter dance for Herod when he was drunk in a sexual way. And Herod was so impressed, he said to the daughter, I'll give you anything, even up to half my kingdom, what would you like? And Herodias took her daughter aside and said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod is in a dilemma. He likes John, he's intrigued by John, but his wife overpowers him, and he orders the man, and the man kills John the Baptist, and his head is brought on a plate before them, and they all laugh at it and scorn it. Now what happened is, around this time, Jesus began to be more public, and he was, he was healing the sick, and casting out demons, and speaking powerful words, and Herod became convinced that this was John the Baptist back from the dead, to haunt him. And he's superstitious and terrified that this be, might mean that John the Baptist will come to bring retribution upon him. He was obviously, isn't it interesting, he had him killed, and men of God can be hated, they can be hounded, gossiped about, that happened with the Covenanters and the Reformers. Everyone was very bold when they spoke about Calvin or John Knox, and they spoke them down and, and they spit them in at these men, but deep down they were actually afraid of them. And even though they have them killed, even after they're killed, they're afraid somehow that this will come back to haunt them. You cannot hate or kill a prophet of God or a man or woman of God and not expect that to happen. The real reason, like Cain's with Abel, the real reason he wanted rid of Abel was because Abel was righteous and he was not. And he was afraid of Abel's godliness, so he hated Abel's godliness. Herod thinks John's back to haunt him. And the disciples say, some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah. And there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that I referred to there that said, before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And there's a big theological debate in Jerusalem at the time. Can, can this man really be the Messiah? Where's Elijah? Well, I just told you where Elijah is. Elijah was executed by Herod. The reference wasn't to Elijah himself, but as Elijah prepared the way for Elisha, so John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ. As Elijah came in fire and in declaration and in opposition to the false prophets and in power and in judgment and in fierceness, to call fire down from heaven, to prepare the way for Elisha's message of grace. So John the Baptist came thundering against the Pharisees and the Romans and against false religion to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Elijah and John the Baptist are the plough that cuts up the ground so that the Christ can come and plant the seed. 
And I go, that's another sermon in itself. We don't have time to go into that. There always is a plowing before a planting. If you're being plowed right now, and the blade hurts, and the ground is being plowed in your heart, don't be discouraged, because the Lord often does that before he plants the seed, before we grow. He plows the way like he did with John, so that Christ can come. Others say Jeremiah, and that's very unbiblical, but the Jews believe that Jeremiah will come back from the dead, from Babylon, and be raised from the dead, and that he would bring back the lost Ark of the Covenant, and bring it to the temple, so that the Jews could rule again and defeat the Romans. So you see how these things grow up in the church. There are kind of legitimate things connected to scripture, and then these other fanciful positions that we can genuinely hold as Christians that we think are based on scripture. There was a serious uh, opinion talked about in the synagogues that Jeremiah would come back and bring back the ark. God hadn't promised any of that, but it's amazing how we can think something scriptural when it's not. So the disciples say, all of these people have these opinions. There are many opinions. You are the prophet, that you are a, a prophet sent from God, that you may be Elijah, you may be John the Baptist, Maybe you're Jeremiah, and you speak like Jeremiah. Maybe you'll bring back God's ark and his presence to the church, and we can flourish again. But Jesus didn't take them up there to just ask, what do, who do men say that I am? Because the real question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And we can never be asked a more important question than this. My brothers and sisters, my friends, there are many ideas in our world today. There is false worship like they had here in Dan. There are churches all over the place. There are evangelical gospels and ideas always wanting your attention. There are Caesars that want to be worshipped. Presidents, senators, businessmen, film stars, all of these people. And they're the Caesars of the world. They have streets named after them and they have stars on Hollywood Boulevard named after them. There are ideas about philosophy and books that we read and ideas we hear and podcasts and websites and conversations. There are all kinds of things. The world is filled with all these ideas. And it can seem complicated. If you're a young person, I guarantee you, if you're in your twenties or below, that your your life of ideas is more complicated than your parents was or definitely your grandparents. This has become a pluralistic society a loud, opinionated society is unraveling. Uh, we're more like Rome than any other uh, society that's come before us since Rome fell. We've gone back to the Greco-Roman world, where sexuality is anything you want it to be, uh, where gender is anything you want it to be, where you live uh, as hedonists only for pleasure and for the immediate and for this life only. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we're going to die anyway. Let us see. Let us move forward in our lives and fill our life with education and career and success 
and moving up the ladder. Let us build our families and our homes and make our castles here and let them be beautiful. Let them be affluent. Let us live in ease like they did in Sodom. Let us live in ease like they did in Rome. Because we are advanced and we have understanding and we are more educated than our forefathers were. We are being sold this lie by the devil himself who creates all of this confusion. For who else could create such confusion than the one who has confused himself? But God does not, he is not the author of confusion. And he never gives confusion to the world or to us as the church. And there is only one question. And the question is, who is this man? Who is this one who claims this? Who is he? It's the greatest question you can ever be asked. If you're young among us today, let me say to you that it's the only question that matters in your life. There are other questions. What college will I go to? What will my job be? Who should my friends be? Will I ever be married? Will I enjoy my life? Will I ever visit the places I want to travel? And so on and so on. All of these things. They are legitimate in a way, legitimate questions that I ask. But let me tell you that these attractive questions can be poisonous, they can be addictive. They, they are, these questions are magnets that are stronger than you and they can take over your mind as a weak sinner who's been born into this world. The only ultimate question that you need to ask is who do you say the son of man is? Who do you say this is? You have to ask uh, that question. Your eternity depends on that question. Not your job. Not your stability of life. Not the degree that you'll receive and the diploma you'll receive that you'll be able to say for years, I achieved this. But at the end, and when you stand before God and when you pass from this world, these things will matter little. They have their place. And let us honour God by doing well with our lives. But let us not mistake success for godliness and for salvation. We must stand before God and he would ask us these questions, really. The main question he will ask us is, Who do you say that this son of man is? For I sent him, and who is he? And our, our eternal destiny and the faith of our souls depends on that question. And Jesus asks them alone, after teaching them for 18 months or so, these men grew up in the Jewish society and who have some knowledge, and he must ask them. And he takes them aside to ask them. And at times in my life, and in times in your life, he will take us aside. He will turn the wheel of providence. He will fix the dials, and your life will turn left. And he'll bring you down a driveway, and he'll, he'll park there, and the engine wouldn't start until you answer this question. He'll force you onto your bed. He'll force you in health. He'll force you financially, geographically. God is the governor of our lives, and he will make us answer this question. Even when we're Christians, he'll take me aside. He'll force me into the uncomfortable and unknown and force us aside. 
and he will ask us again, who do you say that this is? You're telling everyone you know who this is, but who do you really believe this is? That's the asking. And then comes the answer. And the answer is, comes from Simon. You are the Christ. You have to understand, this is not an easy answer. You have to understand that this is the obvious answer. Maybe to us it is, because we're in a church and we know what the answer to this should be. But it wasn't the answer that you would expect from Peter. You have to remember, all of Peter's ministers were saying that this son of man, this prophet, was false that he was a liar, that he was possessed by a demon, that he was born of fornication, that his, his earthly father wasn't really his father, and that he was born in spurious circumstances, that he was a wine-giver and a drunkard, and that he spoke against God and was a blasphemer. The whole of the religious colleges in Jerusalem had questioned Christ, and they come to the conclusion that he was a fraud. Peter, a few days before this, had been with a group of 10,000 people and he thought, we're all going to have an inauguration and a coronation and Israel's back and me and these other 12 are going to be the main senators in this new administration. Things were going the right way and Jesus refused it all and took them aside and he, re he renounced all of the people and he taught and a sermon that was impossible to understand. He was talking about blood and flesh and death. And Peter sat in the synagogue and watched all the other, watched all the other people who had professed Christ. He, wa he watched them all walk out. That's what the gospel does. Now you imagine if there's someone sitting here who loves the Lord like Peter did. And you're sitting in the pew. And in six weeks time everyone here gets up and says, we're tired of this, this is all false and we're leaving, and there's only one person left. That's not easy. There's strength in the number. Could I be wrong? Everyone else seems to think that this is not biblical, this is not correct, this is, that this man's claims don't match with the Old Testament. That he asks the disciples, some of them are silent, Judas is definitely silent, Judas's heart has begun to fall, he thinks what the others thought that left, but Judas is too much of a coward to leave himself. He actually thinks probably worse of Jesus than the ones who left it. He, he's looking at Jesus and he begins to hate him. This is a pathetic Messiah. This man wouldn't be crowned. This man is no match for the Romans. This man would bring riches and blessing and the days of Solomon back to us. This man doesn't even know his Bible. He's saying things that are I and he looks at Jesus and when he sees Jesus' face he just he, he's beginning to think, I, I hate this time. But Peter, in amongst all of that, he says, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. What a wonderful answer. That answer contains all of the Old Testament. Peter isn't saying you are the Christ because Christ is a, a nice word or a word is heard. 
This is Jewish theology. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The one, the one who will be born out of millions. And Peter said, it's this man we're standing with. Dressed in a garment and an ephod with his sandals and his hair and his beard and he looks like all of us and he gets hungry, he falls asleep in boats. We hear him weeping when he prays. His, his brothers think he's crazy. His, his mother doesn't seem to think he's the Messiah, necessarily. He's not married. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a synagogue. He's not being trained by the rabbis. And Peter looks at him and he says, This is the Christ, the seed of the woman. The one Moses said would come and speak the word of God and that all of Israel must hear him and him alone. This is the one we've been singing about our whole life, Peter says. When we sing in the synagogue and we say, Give strength to thine anointed Lord and raise him from the dead and the whole earth will worship him and he will have a kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. He will reign from sea to sea and the whole earth shall remember him and bow to him. He is the one who Jehovah says, Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make the whole world a footstool before this man from Nazareth who's untrained. This is the one Isaiah spoke of who would suffer for the sins of Israel. This is the one that Psalm 2 says is the Lord's anointed who will crush all of the enemies of God. Where's his horse? Where's his army and chariots? You are the Christ. The one that Daniel said would come <coughs> in the 69 weeks and will come and be cut off and the Antichrist will come against the one who will bring an end to all sacrifice the sacrifice from the Garden of Eden the sacrifice from Cain and Abel the sacrifice that Abraham gave that Job gave that Isaac and Jacob gave that all of Israel was built around that God gave at Mount Sinai this man who has walked with us for miles, is, there's dust on his feet, there's sweat on his face, he's tired, and he sits down with us here in Caesarea Philippi, and says, who, who do you say I am? You are the Christ of God, who is about to demolish all the sacrifices of the temple. Believe me, this was not an easy answer for Peter to give, but this is what he believes. Not only that, but you are the son of the living God. It's one thing to say, who is the Christ? And there are all these candidates living in their day. That this person will be the Christ. But Peter knows more than that. He knows more than the scribes and Pharisees who are trained. He knows more than the Old Testament even makes clear. Yes, they were expecting a Messiah. They all were. Yes, they were expecting a Christ. They all were. But Peter says, this is not only a Christ, but this Christ is the Son of God. This Christ is God himself. This Christ is 
the only begotten Son of God, the eternally generated Son of God, the one who comes from the Father eternally and who's face to face in eternity with the Father, the one whose arm is as strong as the Father and who rules over all things, created all things and who judges all things. This one is equal. This is God somehow. I doubt that Peter fully understood this answer, but he knows that this is the Son of God. And he asks you and I the same question this morning. The question isn't who the men say that I am. Who does President Trump say that I am? Or who does Joel Osteen say I am? Or who does John Piper say I am? Or who does John Calvin say I am? Who do you say that I am? Can you say that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Can you say that you believe not in Jesus' teacher, not in Jesus the prophet, not in the Jesus of Islam, who is good and wise, not in the Jesus of Catholicism, who will somehow forgive our sins, and who will somehow bring us closer to Mary, not the Jesus of liberalism, who didn't rise from the dead, and who said some nice things in the Bible, and that's it, period. Not the Jesus who's pro-Republican, the Jesus who's pro-gun, the, the Jesus who, who the, the greatest thing in his heart is to restore America to its founding father principles. Not the Jesus who'll give you freedom and a house and all of these good things. Jesus, the Lord, may be concerned about most of these things in their own way, but none of that will, that is not the question. It is not that Jesus that will save. It's not the social Jesus who helps you with your relationships and helps you with your depression. It's not the, the broad evangelical Jesus that gives money to the poor and who helps us speak in tongues and who makes our marriages better and who gives us our best life now. It's not the Jesus of all the books that you can buy in all of these places. It's not the Jesus who shows up at the Congress prayer breakfast where there's a rabbi and a liberal minister and an Episcopalian minister and an imam of Islam and a couple of senators and they all pray together. If, if you believe in a Jesus who's comfortable with that, it's a Jesus that is made up. All of these Jesus are made up. They're as useful as the golden calf in Dan that we envisage ourselves. They are counterfeit. Can you say that you believe in the Christ? The Christ. For there is only one. There isn't a Christ for every weather. There isn't a Christ for every color and creed. There isn't a Christ for every position we hold. There is only one Christ that actually exists. And it's the one that Scripture has brought us today in these passages in the Old Testament and that is standing there speaking to Peter and I ask you I ask you for us all the young people too do you think an association with one of these other Jesuses will keep you safe from God do you think that the Jesus of your parents or your friends will, will, will somehow save you and keep your life full it wouldn't trust me 
has been tried and done. There is only one Christ, and he is the Son of the living God. He has nothing to do with Pan, he has nothing to do with Caesar, he has nothing to do with the gods of nature and other religions that are created by men. There is but one living God who is immovable, ever-present, and who we must always deal with, even this morning. And he has one son, and that son is the Christ of Scripture, the judge, the one who blasts us with his law, the one who calls us to himself, the one who washes sin, the one who dies on a cross to atone for sin, the one who shall judge the earth in righteousness, the one who right now on the throne, whose face beams with light and approachable, and who blinds us with his holiness, there is only one Christ. And Peter says, you are that Christ, my, my friend. Are you saying that this is the only Christ for you? He alone can save you. I implore you to to go up to the place of all religions like these men did and to look Christ in the face as we look at him these weeks coming to look at him in the face the Jew from Nazareth and to look at him and to watch him and hear him and to look at this man's response to him let me say one thing in closing about this man's response it doesn't come from man you are Simon son of Jonah Bar Jonah, that's the Hebrew for the son of John, a fisherman, never been to college, probably never even been to school, worked with his hands all his life, just a fisherman. His only area of expertise is fish, boats, weather. The Pharisees hate this Messiah, but this fisherman knows God and it's because the Father revealed it to him blessed are you Simon son of John flesh and blood did not reveal the sea but my Father in heaven the son of John should not be able to figure out the hidden mysterious son of God who the world doesn't know how can the son of John know the Son of God because of the Father because the Father reveals the Son and this saying from Peter and I'm closing with it this saying from Peter is, is not um, and I don't want you to leave with the wrong thought this is not Peter just saying something and saying this is the Son of God, and that's my answer. And Jesus saying, correct, you're in. It's not a general knowledge question. He didn't just answer this because he heard it. It doesn't arise from his own mind. He is just flesh and blood, Jesus says, and that did not reveal this to you. His own brain didn't reveal it. His own heart didn't reveal it. His own reading didn't reveal it. None of these things reveal to us the true glory of Christ. None of them. There is no hope for us to read and think and figure out God for ourselves. We are not, we are not 
capable of it. Flesh and blood can't do it. It's not just an answer. This rises from the soul of Peter out of the opening and regeneration and power and love of God in his soul. And Jesus brings it out like a fountain here. It's in Peter's heart because he's been born again by the Father. So he isn't just the son of John. He is born not of John, but born of God. The life and spirit of God have opened his soul and made it alive. And when the Son comes to him and says, Who am I? It bursts out in a glorious affirmation that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God and I know it because the Father has given me life. And I, I implore you as we leave and as we look at this in these weeks, you must have asked that question and you must, you must deal with that question. You must. It's not enough to know an answer. It's not enough to say an answer, friends. It's not enough. We will not be given a test when we stand before the throne of God. It's not a, it's not a general knowledge test that we can just give an answer and a word, a saying, is not going to save us. The only thing that saves and the only thing that's real is when we are saying something because it's bursting out of the heart. Because we come to know it and we believe it by faith and it's ours. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And flesh and blood did not reveal this to him. I will pray every day over the next ten or so weeks, perhaps longer, I will pray that all we will see in this place comes from God and not from flesh and blood. Stop relying on your flesh and blood and your own thoughts in these matters. You must respond to Jesus Christ and his Father. You must, you must take this seriously. You must bow before him and you must engage with the scriptures of God and ask yourself the serious question, what am I and what do I believe about this person? I will stand before God one day and I will give an account for everyone in this room. And there, may, there would be blood on my hands. I, trust me, no matter what age you are, there is coming a day in your experience where you will stand before God and you will remember this day because I said to you, you must seek God and answer this question. And you may think it's ridiculous now. It's maybe bouncing off you right now. But my dear friend, there will come a day where you will remember this day and this sermon. And God will ask you, who do you say I am? It's, it, that day is coming, my dear friend. 
and I love you. Do not allow yourself to be lost. May God bless his word to our souls.